and welcome to the Greenville Smart Podcast. I'm your host, Elaine McNamara, the director of the Greenville Chamber of Commerce and the director of operations here at the Smart Center in Greenville. With me, as almost always, is Deloy Cole, That's our producer. Yes. Yes. Good to be here. We feel much better when Deloy is here. It's just it's a sense of security. Really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Stop being insecure about your sense of (laughs) security that you bring. The Greenville Smart Podcast is brought to you by Greenville University, the Greenville Chamber of Commerce, and Greenville Smart. Log on to greenvillesmart.com for more information about space rentals or possibly some office space, greenvillesmart.com. With us today, we're very excited. We have Terrell Carter with us today. His official title, Chief Diversity Officer and Special Advisor to the President of Greenville University. Welcome, Terrell. Thank you for having me. We're very excited to have you here because, well, you're kind of a natural at this. You've got a little experience in the, um, you know, the broadcasting podcast type world, correct? I do. I have uh, a I am the co-host of a program called The Conversation that actually airs in Greenville. Uh, and also for a year and a half, I had a radio program in St. Louis called uh, Communities Forward. It was a... Uh, show where I interviewed people who were doing interesting things in the community who were moving the communities forward. And again, that's where the uh, conversation um, came from. So yeah, I've been on the radio for about a year and a half or two and a half years now, rather. Well, I would have thought it was much longer because I listened to some of your um, episodes of the conversation and I think... Well, Terrell is much more professional than I am. So, <laughs> And we're doing a really good job of fooling you because we're two grown men, uh, two 12-year-old boys trapped in grown men's bodies. So, Aren't all grown men? <laughs> I think so. I don't know. Very much so. <laughs> Women are really just like 15-year-old girls trapped in women's bodies. So we're all, you know, probably in the same, kind of in the same boat. Um, well, but Okay, so you've got that background, but I want to talk to you a little bit more about your background because... You've got a lot of uh, a lot of titles that you've held in a lot of different positions as as have, you know, I in a different way, but yours, oh my goodness. So tell us a little bit. You were a, a police officer? I was. I was a police officer in the city of St. Louis from 1997 to 2003. Uh, I always, so I do a lot of public speaking in general, but when I talk about being a police officer, I usually ask people, so what were you doing at the age of 23? And I tell them somebody gave me a gun and a badge and told me to go out and save the world. So that was a unique experience. Wow, it's different. That, yeah. that is impressive. And there's not a lot of 23-year-olds that you would uh, give that responsibility not to. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> they probably they probably should not have given it to me as well. Well, I think it probably turned out okay. It seems like uh, you've... Uh, maybe, was it that a maturing um, experience for you, do you think? It was. So I am African-American. Uh, it's obvious the two of you looking at me, but some of the <laughs> listeners may not know that. And I grew up in North St. Louis. And to be truthful, my life was essentially a statistic growing up. Uh, teenage parents, uh, neither one of them graduated from high school. I have a twin brother as well. So if I say we, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, mother was murdered when we were seven years old and father was not a part of our lives. So our grandparents raised us. Our father's parents raised us and um, raised us in a loving Christian home. And eventually our father, when we turned, we became teenagers, decided he wanted to have a relationship with us. And um, it did not work out, but we got to spend four years uh, with him uh, in a place called Gatesville, Texas. So we went to high school in Texas. And when that was done, we came back to St. Louis. Um, And the city of St. Louis had changed in the time that we had left uh, from junior high to uh, the end of high school. 
Um, and the community experienced, you know, drugs and gang violence, all those different kind of things. Um, so when we were in St. Louis growing up first, we did not experience those things or the neighborhoods did not experience those things. Uh, but a particular uh, movie came out uh, called Colors and the gang culture that had been in Los Angeles and on the West Coast infiltrated or started seeping into St. Louis. And so our experience when we got back from Texas was not good in the sense that all this violence, all these gangs, but police in our communities didn't care that we were young men who went to church constantly, who both, um, you know, earned multiple scholarships when we to start college. Uh, nobody knew or cared that I was an artist or that I was, I accepted my call to ministry when I was 16 years old and preached my first sermon when I was 17. Wow. So my experiences with police were not good at all growing up. And I was a young uh, married man and my wife told me she was pregnant and I literally prayed, God, I need to, I need a, a different job. I was working in construction at the time and it was not paying very well, not uh, no insurance. And I prayed two days later, I heard a promotional advertisement on the radio for the police department. And I said, God, this cannot be the answer to <laughs> oh, my prayer. My goodness. <laughs> and I did have one positive example of a police officer growing up, um, friend of ours, his father was an officer, had uh, been promoted to sergeant. And I called him. And by the time I you know, was 23, um, he was a lieutenant. I called him and, and said, hey, here goes my life circumstances. And my life circumstances were extremely similar to his. And he said, here goes, you know, what I need to tell you or what you need to know. That here go all the positive things, but here go the things that are not so positive. You need to make a decision and have a plan if you're going to do this. And so I, I applied and, and got in. And my goal uh, when I became an officer was to try to help people have different experiences with police than what I did. And what I learned about policing in St. Louis anyway, is that the system of policing is not about helping people. It's about protecting and fostering that system versus doing what's best for people. Um, I've written two books on my experiences being a police officer. One is a, essentially a biography called Walking the Blue Line. A police officer turned community active community activist provides solutions for the racial divide that was written in 2015 after Michael Brown was shot and killed. And then uh, just last year, I had a book published called Police on a Pedestal, Responsible Policing in a Culture of Worship. I'm mentioning those two because people automatically think that I am anti-police, that I hate police, that I am totally against police. I am not against police. I am acknowledging and pointing out the things that are wrong with the systems of policing in the United States. Now it's not everything that happens is not police officers fault. I'm not saying that or implying that at all, because in those books, I also point out and talk about what we as citizens should be doing, could be doing to make police officers jobs and lives a lot easier. But the bigger point is that the system that is policing in the city of St. Louis, at least is not about helping people. It's about, uh, protecting that system and fostering, you know, the things that go along with that. Wow. So yeah, yeah you you've seen it from both sides. Yeah, so I mean, you know. yeah, I I, I, was a, I am a black man who was a police officer, and I actually left the police department because I testified against my partner, who planted drugs and stole money from some citizens, and he was a black man. This other police officer, so uh, it uh, it goes all ways. Right. Yeah, you've seen it all. Yeah, all the way yep. around. I, I've also seen the. I almost said I've seen the good, but I would have to literally think long and hard to 
be able to come up with many examples of good that I saw while I was on the department. Do you think there were a lot of your fellow officers who entered into the police department with the intent on doing the good and then they basically gave in to the system because they felt, I mean, like it changed them? Do you think I, that? I would, I would say that I, I can imagine that most officers felt mm-hmm. like that. I mean, no officer, right. I never no, met I don't him. think they, yeah, they would go in with the intent to be, but did you think that that was, it broke, yeah, the system, broke them down? Yeah, the system does. I mean, yeah. if you want to be, number one, if you want to be protected, if you want mm-hmm. to go home every day, then you better make sure that you're getting along with your coworkers, plain right. and simple. Um, very early on in my career, I had a training officer and I've told this story multiple times uh, on the air and uh, in interviews, but I had a training officer who wanted to help me get statistics, which is the point of being a police officer, uh, meaning he wanted to help me get arrest. And you have to get certain types of arrests, which are drug arrests. Those are the ones that make a difference. Helping somebody, helping a family get resources. And nobody cares about that um, on the St. Louis Police Department. Um, so we arrest a guy. And my training officer writes the report and I refuse to sign it. And he literally said to me, if you don't sign this, you are going to be out on the street by yourself. So I left without signing, went to another officer who I thought I could trust and said, hey, this happened. This older officer said, all right, give me a little bit of time. I help you figure something out. When I came back to work the following day, my training officer confronted me and said, I know what you did. You ever go behind my back again you were going to be out on the street by yourself. And this officer was well known, you know, was a go getter, which most police officers are told they're supposed to be. But I learned within my first three months on the department that don't buck against the system. Cause if you do, you will be out there by yourself. So can you, t- can you explain being on the street by yourself? Kind of what that means. That means that don't, if you are ever in trouble, you, you won't be able to get anybody to come help you on the job, right on the job. Okay. So if I get into a fight with somebody, so if you ever see a police radio, on the very top of the radio is going to be an orange button or a yellow button, whatever. That is an aid call button, meaning when you push that, everybody and their mama, that's not correct English, <laughs> everybody and their mama is going to come from the entire city to try to find you and help you with whatever this is going on. Right. Or you can push the button and, or, you know, you open up a call and go 340, which was my first call letter, 340, officer in need of aid. I'm here, you know, and get out as much information as possible. What he was saying was, you ever get in one of those situations, nobody's coming. Right. Don't ever expect anybody I to see. show up. Wow. Did that ever happen? I will say that um, anytime the button was pushed or an A call came out, I made sure that I went, that I responded. I'll just put it that way. Okay. So, wow. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. You it's, know, yeah. It's, it's not about doing what's right, it's about politics and understanding the structure of the system that you operate in and then what does that system require of you so back to the question you asked yeah i think and i've said this in writing uh in both of the books that policing changes you because number one just what a police officer sees is never you're not seeing people at their best right no one calls 911 just to say hey thank you for it's always some intense some emotional some stressful and unfortunately, you begin to start viewing everyone like that. And it happened to me as well. And it happened to me with other black people. Like, why can't you all take care of your own? What? I don't need to take your, your baby daddy, or your baby mom. You know, yeah. this is not my problem. Figure this out yourself. And uh, when I began to realize that was the attitude that I was having was eye opening for me, because up to that point, again, um, I understood um 
you know, a call to ministry, a call to serve as early as 16 years old. Um, and at one point I thought policing could be a part of that call to service, but it just didn't work out. It would probably depend on being in another another area or another town or, or another city. Who knows? Yeah. yeah, another yeah. city, another department. And, and St. Louis is unique. My first year, um, I was in the busiest. So a city is divided into, as it relates to police, a city is divided into a dis in, into districts. Each district is divided into areas, and then each area is divided into ca- uh, cars. I was in the busiest district, the busiest area, and the busiest car for three years, first three years of my uh, professional career. Wow. And one or two of those years is when St. Louis was the most dangerous city in the United States. So yeah, I remember that. And what was the final straw for you? Again, uh, I mean, I'd already known that it was not going to work out for me, but I was, you know, trying to figure out how to do it or how to just stay undercover. Uh, but when um, I was called to, I was contacted by federal prosecutors uh, for a case that I knew that my partner had lied on. And I'd already been trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? Right. Um and then when the feds called me and asked me to come down for a briefing, um, I, I walked in and just said, okay, this is not what I remember. What you are showing me in this report does not reflect the things that I remember happening. And the irony of all that is uh, the prosecutor asked me to make to clarify myself several times. And she then said to me, you are the person we've been waiting for. Wow. And you never want to hear that coming from a federal right. prosecutor. Right. <laughs> and the, yeah, I mean, it was about the planning the drugs. And right. It was that, that, so that what it turned out is they had been watching him for years because he had previously killed someone. Uh, he had multiple complaints. And then something a little more dramatic occurred that I'm not going right. to talk about on right now. But uh, they had been waiting for someone who was willing to tell the truth about him. And it just so happened that I did. So she said, you are the person we've been waiting for. She explained to me why and said, you need to leave right now because your partner's coming up the elevator to come join this meeting and you'll be uh, contacted by another federal prosecutor. And a year later, I was uh, testifying in court and he ended up going away for five years of federal penitentiary on violation of civil rights and a couple of other things as well. Did he ever try to contact you? No, but he um, he made sure that I knew that he was not happy. Oh, man. <laughs> Dude, I'm you sorry. Want to tell us how? I'm not trying to be sarcastic. <laughs> I, I was I was uh, the FBI agents uh, made sure to advise me of a few things that he either said or he was trying to plan. And uh, none of those things ever came through. So he, uh, he ended up going to the federal penitentiary. I did have other police officers. <clears throat> Excuse me. I did have other police officers who, who were friends of his, who expressed interest. So I was a black sheep for a while. But the irony is, all these years later, that first training officer that I talked about uh-huh. and that I wrote about, he ended up getting fired because of some things. And I ended up saying publicly through an interview, like if people would have listened to me way back then, then none of these other lives would have been ruined, and none of these other things would have occurred. And yeah, so, I mean, I I don't, my intent is never to sound overly righteous because I made my mistakes when I was a police officer, Um, but I could not send someone, and this can turn out to be a totally different interview. There's a, there's a game that police are able to play. You can arrest someone, 
without them ever going to jail, without charges ever sticking, whatever. If you want to try to teach somebody a point, teach someone a point, like, I know you're selling drugs. I'm taking you into custody right now. I'm giving you 24, 48 hours to think about it. But if I ever catch you again, your life is going to be ruined because I'm going to put you through the system. So every police officer does that uh-huh. because the idea is you. I'm giving you a choice to do right. And if you choose to not do right, then you understand here go the consequences. That's something totally different from planting drugs on someone. Right. Even if you know they, because what we eventually found out is that the guy that my partner was so hot and heavy for, he had been trying to bust him on drug charges for five or six years and always failed at it. And it just was a perfect storm of this one particular incident. And, um, but I, I couldn't see, I couldn't since I have, I have sons, I have brothers, right. I have nephews, not let alone, I mean, clearly I believe that it goes against what God wants or how God wants us to treat other people. But we all as black men had experienced police falsely doing something to us. We all, he had experienced it. His sons experienced it. And my question to him was like, why would you do this to somebody else? If you know this stuff has occurred and you know how damaging it is to someone's life, why would you do this to someone else? He got so wrapped up in it. Yeah, he wanted to. So I feel goofy in saying this, but in, in general, he was not a bad guy, meaning he was not an evil I hate everybody. I'm going to make. No, he hated drug dealers. He legitimately thought drug dealers were doing harm to uh, the particular community that we were serving. Uh, But he clearly went up, you know, and it came out. He went above and beyond and did illegal things to try, which if he had just waited, he could have done the right thing. But we also found out that he was doing it to many other people as well. I mean, when the trial occurred, he ended up having people come out of the woodwork for example, um, he arrested one guy several, several years before and had stolen a bunch of the guy's stuff, including a cell phone. So this guy was locked up in prison and he was using his cell phone and other things. So anyway. Oh, bigger, wow. Right. So it was just a very, it's a, it's a script. There's a script in there somewhere. There is. <laughs> there's I'm script. telling you, there's another book there. Right, if that has, is it already in the, one of those books? Some of those, you? some of those details are in the first book. Yes. I think you have a movie on your hands. Holy cow. Yeah, so you know, so you, wow, you have, uh, you've lived it, you've seen it, you came out of it, and it sounds like, I mean, once you were out, you don't, you don't worry about it anymore, do you? No, I mean, when I see certain officers who I know I used to work with, or who used to work with him, I, I, I do keep my head on a swivel, uh, and I don't say that trying to be sarcastic. Um, the year after he went to prison, uh, my twin brother and I took our kids, uh, we both have two kids uh, and some other kids that we mentor took them all to a football game. And as we were walking up to the football game, it was in downtown St. Louis. My twin brother said, why is that whole group of guys over there standing us like they are ready to come fight? And I looked over and it had been guys that I had worked undercover with before. And they recognized me obviously. And they clearly wanted to make sure that, that I understood their displeasure with me. Cause everybody knew, uh, this former partner that I testified against um, was the first of three, essentially three sets of officers who all got caught up in something and ended up going to jail. And the irony is, all, irony is that all three of them were African American officers as well, um, setting up other, setting up other, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, but so I don't. Most people, um, so. 
if I was still on, I'd have 23, almost 24 years in. Uh, so many of the officers that I work with are not there anymore. Um, and to be truthful, uh, the department's memory can be really short. Um, again, unless you've done something personally with someone, right. because it's just on to the next one. Because oh, they sure. they know that this is my partner is not the first, and he will not be the last. And you wouldn't have been the last person in the position that you were put in, right? For sure, right? So you left there. Uh, from there, did you become a pastor? Again? Did so you- I had our, another irony of all this was I was <laughs> serving congregations as pastor or interim pastor throughout this time sure. as okay. well. Um, so at 23 years old, 24, I was serving as interim pastor of a congregation in the district that I was patrolling, which was always interesting. When I left the police department, uh, I ended up getting called back to another congregation that was in that really busy district. Um, and I was called there because the pastor of that congregation had been killed in the basement of a church by someone from the community. Yeah. Oh, I, I always get called to some very interesting circumstances. Well, <laughs> maybe that's that's your calling. Yeah, it yeah, is. Literally. No, I, I, I have come to learn that what the Lord has blessed me with multiple different types of life experience. And I do my best to be a calming presence no matter where I am. And I'm able to do that I because that. I learned it. I, I learned it as a police officer. Sure. Like you don't have to raise your voice. You don't have to get excited. Don't tell people to calm down. I mean, you ask some key questions, you make certain gestures. And I'm not trying to be funny when I say that, but there are certain things that can bring people off the ledge or bring their level of intensity down. So you can help them process or whatever. And what I've learned is that those skills, you know, translate to so many other areas. But yeah, I've always, you know, had this dream of doing like this really, this, you know, wonderful and not saying that none of the things are not wonderful, but you have an idea in mind, a vision in mind. And where God has called me or led me has always been the opposite of that. And I've learned to embrace that now, though. Yeah, I've learned to embrace it and just say, okay, Lord, you have equipped me for this time. Just help me to understand what it's time to leave. And it may just be that the road to where that place you want to be is just a long road and I, it comes just, back around. I, I've to given that. up on what I think that road looks like. I, that's not a negative. No, that's not. That's you got to just let go sometimes. Yeah. You have to let go and you never know. I mean, I don't know if any of us planned it to be where we are today. No. And, uh, how did, how did you get here? What? So yeah. the, the goal had all, or the dream had always been to be a, professor or to work at, you know, at a university full time. So I started teaching adjunct. Uh, so I answered my call to ministry 30 years ago. I started teaching on the college level 20 years ago. And um, I was serving in multiple social service agencies, but still teaching. And then uh, when I was working on my second doctorate, I ended up having a, a one particular assignment to write an article to get published. And that happened the first time I tried. And then I did it again and did it again. And this passion of writing was sparked in me. And so it led to me, I've written 11 books now. I had essentially, I I published probably two to three, at least two to three books a year. Like I had one published in February. I have one coming out next week. And then I have potentially two more this year. The the bigger point though is is that I'm doing all this writing, all this research. And 
Um, and it's primarily around reconciliation. So reconciliation between police and community, racial reconciliation, just reconciliation in churches in general. Uh-huh. Uh, so I had been, uh, when I finished my doctor of ministry, I got hired by that seminary to be a full-time professor. Okay. But I live in St. Louis with my family. I serve as pastor of a church in the St. Louis area. Right. But the seminary was in Shawnee, Kansas. So oh, wow. I was leaving yeah. every Sunday after church driving to Kansas, being there for three to five days a week and then coming home. And our daughter's 15. So son is 22. He's finished college and moved to Atlanta and he has a job. But our daughter's 15. And at this time she was 11, 12, 13. And it was just hard for my wife to raise. And then I would get home on the weekend, like, what is going on? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so, but when I took that job, I had my wife and I, she works for Washington University and she's been there 20 years. She's a director in undergraduate admissions. And she understood that if this is your dream is to be at a university full time, it's not going to happen in St. Louis because you know, number one, um, there are there were no there are no seminaries in St. Louis that align with what my theological thinking is, and I don't say that in a negative way. Just it's there are none. That, and so, uh, and Washington University is not going to hire uh, uh, somebody with a demon other than for an administrative position. So, if I wanted to teach, I went to this university with the understanding that after three years we would. Me and my wife would sit down and we try to figure out what the next step is. And the three years came and. We just started intentionally praying and seeking ways for me to get back to St. Louis. And the position for chief diversity officer came up. And I already knew about Greenville University. Um, when in my early 20s, I did an internship at a free Methodist church huh. uh, that's affiliated, obviously, uh, with um, or with ties to Greenville University. And so I was very familiar with it already and was like, hey, let me throw my hat in the ring and applied and. Now I'm here. <laughs> you are the and now it's history. And now you are you're here and you're in and you have got some <laughs> a multitude of yes. duties and titles and just a few things going just, on. Just just a couple things. And I tried to get you involved in something else too. And they said, he's pretty busy. I was trying to get you I am to, I am thankful that people entrust <laughs> me with leadership. Let me just put it that way. Well, That's how I frame it. You handle it well. well you got I think your background just, you know, is so valuable. To the it, university. It really is. And it's kind of prepared you for this role. Who would have ever thought that I would need that background coming to yeah. <laughs> it kind of all came together. That's what we find. I think the more people we talk to that are here, including you know the mm-hmm. both of us, that our strange mix of background that we thought, why have I gone from this to this? It mm-hmm. doesn't even go together until you get here. And right. then it all works together. Right. It's very... Yeah, it's something that the humans, you know, we would not have come up with this path. No. Oh, you are so right. You know what I'm saying? No. So right. Very, very true. Very true. This was not our design. It was designed for us. So that's pretty amazing. But I I do want to talk to you about um, the groups that you're working with now because we talk about collaboration. And boy, are you collaborating with people. Um, First of all, I want to talk about uh, the return to work, return to school task force Mm -hmm. that you're involved in. So the themes are protect them, teach them, host them, and your role is... I'm leading the protect them team. Again, ironically. Again, yeah, that Um, makes sense. So the goal of that team is to lay down the structure, the foundation for how we return employees and then begin to uh, return students to the campus. Uh, We have written a... I say we because it's a team effort. We have written a um, the, the first portion of this 
much larger plan, the protect them uh, portion. And uh, our goal now is, and we base that plan on an accumulation of data. So what is the unique, what are the unique needs for Greenville University? But what do we see the University of Illinois doing? What do we see our peer institutions in the CCCU or, you know, again, I still teach adjunct at two other colleges in the St. Louis area. Uh, and I'm only teaching online. The bigger point, though, is I have access to their documents and those kind of things. So sure. try to make uh, uh, best use of those things as well. And so we have created a plan. Uh, the president has uh, reframed the structure of um, leadership at Greenville University, where we instead, ha- instead of having SALT, which was four or five senior leaders who make all the decisions, we now have a flattened president's council where we have a multitude of leaders who help to make decisions. And so that plan was presented uh, to the President's Council for comment and edits. And now that we have them, in addition to the fact that the state of Illinois has now released even more information on what they expect, uh, how we're going to reopen, combining all those things, all those edits and this new information that um, the state has given us, uh, the intent is to have this plan submitted to our local um medical professionals, you know, the people who are helping IDPH um, uh, make those kinds of decisions for their input, their edits. And then uh, when they give us approval, we will then release that to the broader community of Greenville University so everybody can fully understand. Right. What we're going to do, how we're going to proceed. Yeah. I mean, we have we have if somebody asks me, so what do we plan on doing? I can tell them what we're planning on doing. What I can say also, though, is it hasn't been finalized because of the need to have input from IDPH as well. So what are we planning on doing? We are planning on. So we have started a uh, staggered return to work Okay. Uh, where two weeks ago, certain employees last week, certain employees this week, certain employees. Uh, and we're following primarily the recommendations of the CDC and their interpretation by IDPH. So we are suggesting that employees wear face masks. Mm-hmm that we do social distancing. And if you can't do social distancing, then you must wear a face mask, those kinds of things. Right. Um, But we're just, we're following the rules that uh, have already been outlined and just trying to tailor them to us. Uh, We will um, give like, so one of the unique things I think, and we picked this up from a local church here in the Greenville area. uh, We all recognize that people are going to have certain levels of comfort returning to work. So if a person does not uh, feel comfortable being around other people, they're going to be able to either wear a red wristband or have a red sign posted at their door that shows people without them having to say, please, you know, I want to follow every single rule and then some. Mm -hmm. And then some other people feel a little more comfortable, but, you know, still are a little, they get to have a yellow sign or a yellow wristband that says, okay, I am okay with things up to a certain point. Mm -hmm. And then um, for those who are, you know, feel much more comfortable, they wear a a green wristband or have a green sign at their door, which shows, hey, you can come in and, you know, things are somewhat normal. That's Interesting. And that might be, that would be great if everyone had that actually. Because, so, you know, you go somewhere and you're like, well, I, I, sometimes the rules are very loose. You go in some place and you don't, for yourself, maybe you're not concerned, but you don't know how someone else is right. going to react and you don't want to scare someone or right. you don't want to put them in a position where they feel like they're That's nice. Also, you don't have to ask threatened. them. Right. And you don't want to, no, yeah, you don't but, have to ask them. I like that. It's just visual and you're like, okay. Yeah. I see where we are. 
you know, even before all this, that would have been nice. Probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, the goal is, is how do we adapt the rules that everyone is already following? How do we adapt them and make them more personal to what the needs are or the desires are to our particular context? Right. And I think that's something we can all understand with, uh, yeah, using those bands. That's that's interesting. I like that. And so we're also, you know, redesigning classrooms, also redesigning workspaces where, again, we can follow the recommendations while still. And when it all boils down to it, an employee has the right and the opportunity to talk to their supervisor and say, here goes what I'm comfortable with. Here goes what I'm not comfortable with. What can we plan on? How can we, you know, how, right. how are you willing to work with me? So my needs, my concerns, I have a daughter who has a compromised immune system. And the last thing I need to do is bring anything home to her. How can you help me figure out how to do this? Exactly. So that's what the plan is, is to, again, to be as personal as we possibly can. That's nice. And you're, and you're making it to where people feel comfortable, I think, expressing their concerns about it. Yeah. And not, you know, without, you know, a threat of anything, you know, any kind of repercussion because, you know, that's, you know, yep. silly. Yeah. So, yeah. So they should, they should feel comfortable with that. That's excellent. All right. So are we going to see fewer students in the classroom? In the classroom, so I am. Know? I have not. I'm not the one writing that. Oh, okay. uh, the teach them uh, portion of the group is managing that, and my goal is not to be elusive, but to not speak on something for, that. First, I think right. that's uh, Casey Laughlin that we probably that is. We need to book her for in sure. here, Deloitte. So yeah. Casey, if you're listening, we're coming looking for you. And you can blame <laughs> Terrell because I'm the one who just snitched on you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yes. So that's the the task force within the university. Now you're on another task force here in Greenville. Um, and I, I'm imagining this comes from a lot of the unrest that we've been experiencing yes. across the country lately. Can you tell me uh, what this task force is and how it, it got started? And It's the Greenville Community Reconciliation Task Force, and it was started by our president, our acting president, Suzanne Davis, and uh, recognizing um, the turmoil that our nation is facing yet again, as it relates to um, African-Americans and their relationship with law enforcement. But Greenville also has a unique history of some concerns surrounding that as well. As we all know, uh, the we had several years ago students take knees, and there were particular kind of community responses to that. Uh, and uh, Suzanne, just, you know, wisely, in my opinion, wants to try to get out in front of any kind of tensions that uh, – people in the community may be experiencing or anticipate experiencing or any tensions that our student body may be experiencing or anticipate experiencing. And so uh, we came up with a list of people from within the university, students, and within the broader community as well, who um, believe, uh, who we believe, you know, will engage in not just conversation, but help come up with actions that will benefit you know, a large amount of people uh, benefit the community as well as the university. And so we have been meeting for at least three weeks now, uh, and we have identified what we hope to be an overall umbrella is the word I use that uh, the umbrella of reconciliation um, and what that means, as well as some actionable items as well. Are there going to be certain events or anything like that to there will educate be. or... There will be there will be events where we you know I don't like the phrase listening tour um, right. because again it's more than just listening we have to get to a point where we something happens but there will be certain events like that there will be certain smaller community group meetings where you know 
we instead of having 100 people there, we may have 20 here on this day, this day, this day. So as many people as possible um, in small enough groups where we can manage and have clear, consistent input. Um, we're going to have those type of events as well. Um, and we'll also have some some very uh, personal or personalized kinds of interactions as well with people who have been identified as either have experienced things that, you know, need to be reconciled. So I'll give just one example. Um, we know that a few years ago, um, we had veterans from the Greenville community who did not appreciate um, students taking a knee during the national anthem. Mm -hmm. And there was an attempt to um, come to a resolution where those veterans could express certain things and students could express certain things, but um, certain a, a separate group from outside of our community, you know, rush the football field, those kinds of things. So may, do we need to continue to have those kind of conversations to make sure that those veterans fully feel like they were heard, right. but also make sure that our student athletes feel like they are fully mm -hmm. heard and to see if there is a common ground that they can land on. And that's just one, just one clear example of, we know that this happened in the past did it really get taken care of or was reconciliation uh, communication fully, you know, bought into, or were they even really given the opportunity? If not, then how do we continue that in a way that makes sure that all those voices are heard and then that something is created, some kind of process or some type of event is developed that they believe in and that they all buy into. So maybe people can hear each other. Yes. Yeah. So uh, serving it, do you, do you think it's serving as sort of a, a moderator for I am because right. so I have to acknowledge that although I work for Greenville, I am not part of any of the history that has occurred. Mm -hmm. and, and to be truthful, that may be better because I, oh, I, I agree. Yeah, one of the things that I've tried to live one of the so I don't think that everything that happens is racist. And I'm not saying right. that that's not a statement about anyone else. I just don't think that everything that occurs between black people, white people, I know that there are more people groups out there than just black and white. But that's what we usually concentrate on. Mm -hmm. I don't think that everything that happens between black people and white people is based on race. Some of it is just based on ignorance. Some of it is based on misunderstanding. Some of it is based on. On your passions or, yeah. you know, what's, you know, like with, with veterans, I think maybe from their point of view on that, it wasn't a race problem with, the, they didn't see it from a race, racial right. divide. They saw it from um, their patriot, you know, from mm -hmm. their service and, and with, you know, I, I can see that. And I, and, you know, seeing it from right. another side too, but like for them, maybe it's not even about right. that. But so the, how do we know that unless we're in conversation? Exa exactly. Because what the, what the veterans would probably find out is that these African-American students do understand it to be a race thing because of what the flag has meant in black history and white people don't fully understand they don't that. Know that. Right. Yeah. They don't fully understand that. They don't know that. Uh, you know, it's and I'm making a very general statement. Right. And in, in the black community, it's less about patriotism and more about something else. It's this patriotism comes at the cost of my individuality, or this patriotism comes at the cost of the history of my people because we don't even get recognized as the ones who have helped to do A, B, C, D. Mm -hmm. Or I give the example: my grandfather, one of my grandfathers, fought in the Korean War. Um, and so when people tell me, not only did my grandfather fall in the, fight in the Korean War, my father uh, was in the army at the end of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, my younger brother, I uh, have three brothers. My younger brother was a staff sergeant in the Air Force and retired. So, so you've got the veteran I have it perspective. Right. But 
in the African-American community, Mm -hmm. there's also the history that when black soldiers came back from war, they were not treated the same as white soldiers. They did not have access to the GI Bill. They did not have access to home loans like white soldiers did. All the things they had been promised literally were denied them because they were African-American. So I respect your patriotism and what (laughs) you sacrificed for the flag or what your father or your grandfather sacrificed for the flag. But understand that my grandfather, my grandfather, my father, and my younger brother all sacrificed the same thing, but did not get the same benefits. Did not get the same benefits. And I wonder if there's a lack of knowledge of that. I I believe there is, because when I've talked to people and and shared that history, they were like, wow, I didn't even know this. I didn't know that. Right. Right. And it's, but it's literally, it is history and it's available. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, there's, it starts getting into a much bigger, longer conversation. And I think, you know, with this group that you're in this task force, maybe that can help a lot just to bring people together. Once people get to know each other too, when you're on two different sides, it's a huge difference when you get to know them personally. And that's what part of my hope is, is that, so again, we cannot have change without conversation, without getting to know each other and understanding why do you do what you do? Why do you believe, feel, think? Why do I do believe, feel, think? And when we come to an understanding, we still don't have to agree, but at least we understand. And then that gives us the tools that gives us the space that gives us the wisdom to now form a plan to navigate what this relationship is like. I don't care if you and I ever get along. That's not it. <laughs> well, but can how we, we not? Well, <laughs> you get the, <laughs> You just gave me such an innocent look. Come on. I, there's no way in the world we cannot get along. I mean, there's no way we couldn't get along. Right. But other people, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right. But it's so, but because there are people that, you know, I'll, so there are people that I've worked with or, and there's even people potentially work with whatever. Right. Uh, that don't, uh, the same, that, you know, the, every church that I've served as, as pastor of three of three different churches, not everyone liked me, not everyone voted for me to be the pastor and not everyone accepted me as a pastor, but we figured out a way that in spite of that, let's do what's and in the best interest of God's kingdom. You can respect someone and not like them too. Ooh, I'd rather you know, know that up front. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather know that up front. Right. I mean, you can respect someone and be like, oh, I respect them. I think they're great at what they do, but I don't want to hang out with them no. kind of thing. You know, I don't want to... Don't want to have coffee. Right. Or you can have great friends that you think completely different, and they could be the best friend that you have, but you don't want to talk about, you know, yep. politics or religion or whatever. <laughs> but I think if a group like this can... I think when when people are so busy yelling at each other and not listening, and they don't know each other, I think not knowing each other might be the biggest problem. Because once you know someone... Um, and someone I know, he said, once you work side by side with someone who you thought was so different, you become the same, you know? I, I, I agree think- with that. And the challenge I, it's before we started, before we came on the air, I was talking about the fact that I consult congregations, mm-hmm. primarily white congregations on how to interact in these kinds of conversations, these kind of opportunities. And that is the first thing that I tell them is you have to begin to have relationships with people who are different from you. Mm-hmm. The challenge usually is, and I'm going to use very broad terms all sure. over again, is white people expect everybody else to come to them. Does that make oh, sense? Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. Sure. And so that's the challenge that I want to make sure that I am bringing up or the fact that I, that I bring it up as part of this is we have got to get uncomfortable. People who usually are used to having, I don't want to use the word control, but having the influence or having control have to understand 
you it's not about you being in control. You didn't say that. I want to make sure that oh, I'm I know. saying it. But, uh, you know, so whether it's veterans who are used to making sure that, you know, when it comes to students or when it comes to administration and or if it comes to. Um, so I, we are blessed to have the city manager as part of this group. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing to him. Like, OK, I recognize that you are the city manager and but you can't be the only one. And thankfully, he he has not tried to be the only one talking. So this is not a statement about anyone. Again, it's just the idea that if this is really going to happen, people have to learn to uh, to give up a certain level of power or a certain level of authority and be willing to share that, you know, sure. with the rest of the rest of the group or the rest of the people to try to, uh, who are trying to improve this situation. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Got to try some different things. You got to, yeah. you know, got to, got to mix it up and, uh, you know, break down some barriers and yeah, giving, releasing, letting go a little bit. Yeah. Just like we talked about letting go in your life, <laughs> following the path that you didn't know that you were going to be taken. Just everybody needs to let go a little bit, um, in order for us to all, uh, walk that uncertain path together, yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and it is so much, uh, so uncertain. It is, but, um, yeah, if we just get to know each other, I think that that is that's that can that can be a beautiful thing, yep. you know. And it's it's the it's the beginning. It is the begin. It is the first step. It is. It's hard to you know even it's hard to hate someone if you know them. You know. <laughs> well, you say that. that. Well, I, I, well, sometimes that makes you not like them even more. I but. know, but, they, but but you still, you know, there's like you know, you, like sometimes my brother, I want to strangle his neck or strangle him, but you know, um, and he might do things I totally disagree with. Um, but but, I, but you know what's hard as well. But you know, right. yeah. Sometimes just knowing where people come from and why they think the way they do, then you can say, oh. I don't think that, you know, that's not my thing, but I understand why you feel that way. And I know what your end goal is. I believe in your end goal. So let's go ahead. And I may not be the one taking the lead or it may not be my decision, but I'm going to bring some resources in. In this area, I feel comfortable participating. So I'm going to participate in that area and I'm going to cheer you on in the rest of the other areas. Definitely. Doesn't a lot of this just come down to being a good listener? I think so. Right. Taking the first step to get to know somebody not in your normal group. Yeah. And then just listening yeah. in, in patience. It's huge. You know that's that a huge, yeah, that's a huge thing, yep. listening. Oh, well, this has been great. Um, I I love that we learned so much about you, Terrell, that I, I didn't know. And I purposely didn't want to delve too deep into researching because I, and I'm glad I didn't. I mean, there's, I knew some things about unfortunately, you. Unfortunately, there's just way too much stuff that I've been involved in and way uh, too but, much stuff out there. <laughs> but I love hearing about it from you instead of reading it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, wow, very impressive, very exciting. Uh, and, if you, uh, anyone who works with me has heard this before. If you get my daughter to say, wow, she's impressed, then I'll be happy. <laughs> oh, well, I, you know, I see her once in a while now. She's been around uh, the Smart Center, so I'm going to have to You can to tell her, go ahead, drop the line and say, your dad is a pretty cool guy. And she'll immediately cool. be like, how much is he paying you to say that? Well, what that? if she goes, wow, really? <laughs> she still said, wow. <laughs> no, yeah, no, that's, that's typically how she goes, wow, really? For real? Uh-huh, Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Terrell, <laughs> for joining us today. Thank and you for having me on. It, yeah, and, and and we'll be um, we will be reaching out to you again because we, I have a feeling we probably could have talked for a whole another 
several segments of this podcast. Well, I think we have gone over what we the time we intended to go anyway. <laughs> I didn't so. even notice. It still you feels didn't... like we just got started. I know, it does. And I didn't even give you the, the salute. That was the, that <laughs> the was salute be is the a sign. sign to say, Terrell, you're talking way too much. <laughs> I didn't even have to. I was, I was too busy, just amazed at everything. So thank you very much. Um, and thank you, Deloitte, as well, for being here and making it, everything work properly. And... Um, Glad all the microphones and everything are working here. Sounds good. We're we're good. We uh, this is our second uh, podcast from the Green uh, officially from the Greenville Smart Podcast Studio. Please contact us. Uh, find us online greenvillesmart.com. Find us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram, and tell your friends to listen to this podcast because they will love it. And thank you once again. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.